Hosting for this podcast is made possible through mtgcast.com, which is supported by a generous contribution from quietspeculation.com, Magic's premier trading and financial news site. Hello and welcome to Delving to Draft. This is episode 33, recorded on the 24th of July, 2013. My name's Craig and I'm one of your hosts. Joining me this week is... Dan! Woo! Right, uh, let's... Actually, first, I'll apologise for my voice. I'm a bit croaky. I've had something wrong my throat for the last four days and it's not going away, so I apologise in advance. Anyways, news. Um, a lot of stuff came out of San Diego Comic Con last weekend, I want to say, I think. Not 100% sure that. Um, there was a big panel going on, which uh, Mara was at, and he revealed a lot of information about things coming up in the future. At somewhat of the same time, PAX Australia was also on, and Aaron Forsyth decided to go reveal a bunch of stuff there. So we got quite a lot of news to talk about, uh, all about stuff in the future, because otherwise it would be that interesting, would it? Well, it wouldn't be news. Yeah, it would be Oats. <laughs> then I start on Theros. So in case you didn't know... It is based on Greek mythology. This has now been confirmed. So in case you weren't aware of that before, Greek mythology is what Theros is all about. Like Innistrad, it's a top-down design, so there is a lot of things which you'll directly be able to relate to Greek mythology. You'll be able to instantly point out, oh, that's like Athena, or oh, that's like um, the Colossus of Rhodes, or that's like, I can't actually think of other stuff off the top of my head, the Medusa. I mean, there's going to be Gorgons, there's going to be Hydras, um... There's going to be a lot of very Greek things going on. A lot of we've seen a lot of Spartan artwork uh, so far yeah. as well. So, actually, one of the coolest pieces of artwork I've seen so far isn't confirmed to be in Theros, but it's actually the Sun Titan appearing in Heroes and Monsters, the new dual deck, because it's a Spartan Sun Titan. It is. It looks so sweet. Yeah, Theros will have an enchantment theme. It's an enchantment block, but not just enchantment matters which I'm not quite sure what they mean by that. Yeah, well, they said they found a way to take enchantments and bring gods to life, so I don't know what that means in terms of each other. Yeah, gods are going to be in this. They've confirmed there's five gods, and I believe I believe they're all monocoloured, at least the ones we've seen so far. We've seen four monocoloured gods. And we have the artwork for a card for the black god, sort of. It has no text on it. It has the artwork of this god who is partially made out of the star stuff. So you remember the um, the original artwork which was previewed for Theros with this big, massive uh, guy in a toga with a massive spear looming over this massive plane. And he, the lower part of his body is made out of star stuff. Well, the other gods seem to be, have the same sort of artistic design where they're sort of made out of star stuff. But the border yeah. is quite different. So... At the bottom, you've got the regular sort of black-coloured border and the power and toughness box, although there's no numbers in it on this preview. But as you go up the border, it becomes the star stuff. So at the top, you've kind of got this galaxy border frame, and at the bottom, it's black. So this is new, like the Miracles had sort of a new border. This is also a new border. The fact there's no text in it means potentially a new card type. I know some people have been thinking that. The fact there's a power and toughness box, even though it's blank, probably means it's just going to be a creature potentially with a new super type, potentially just with a new type or something, or it'll have a mechanic which, like Miracles, they had a mechanic which is why they had a new border. These are all deities, so they may all have a new border to sort of link that in thematically rather than 
being anything super new or exciting, but... Yeah, I mean, I guess it could be anything, but it does look really cool. It might just be just to make them stand out in the battlefield because they are, like, one of the features of the set. Well, I'll be honest. I mean, I imagine it will have something to do with the new mechanic because they've said there's going to be three mechanics. One's tied into heroes, one's tied into the monsters, and one's tied into the gods. Yeah. Um, however, there's also five total mechanics in Theros, so there must be, there's two mechanics which probably go across everything. And what have they said about the other ones? They said that one was a repeated mechanic? Yes, which apparently strongly hits the flavour of Greek mythology. Okay, and one that had been changed, but had already been around. And is also tied to the gods, which has made a lot of people say something to do with, like, Annihilator, because that's the last thing we saw on massive godlike creatures. I think I also saw somewhere, and I like the flavour of Offering, which was back during Kamigawa. Yeah, I, I remember fo- they had, you had, like, Fox Offering, where you could do something to make... I can't remember what the, the rule done exactly, but it, it was tied into each of the creature types. Um, right, let's see if I can find one. So Fox Offering, this is on Patreon of the Kitsune. When you may play this card any time, you could play an instant by sacrificing a fox and paying the difference in mana cost between this and the sacrificed fox. So it could be something like that. Because, I mean, there were a lot of things like sacrifices to the gods. and Yeah. Mm. I mean, that that's entirely a possibility, but a lot of things are a possibility. I mean, this is completely rumour-mongering. We have very little idea what the mechanics are. Am I wrong in thinking one of the mechanics was a future-sighted mechanic, or...? That's, that has been said, but I mean, there's a lot of... Since there's a future-shifted card in Theros, doesn't necessarily mean it's a future-shifted mechanic. I'm pretty sure they said somewhere else that they were doing something which was seen in Future Sight. Yeah. So, hmm. which which isn't the same as the card. So, we're getting something from future-shifted card and something mechanically from Future Sight, which is separate, but... Who you knows? see... If it hadn't been Greek mythology th- themed, I'd be getting quite excited at the possibility of assembling contraptions right now. Yeah, I think hoping that Steamflogger boss is coming into the set, I think you're probably well off track, unfortunately. Yeah, I- I'm, I'm pretty sure you're right. <laughs> yeah. um, now, there's going to be... Well, I guess... We're going back to the old block structure that um, Theros is a large block, and then Born of the Gods and Journey to Nyx are both small. So we're going back to the classic draft format of Days Gone By, which I don't think we've seen since uh, the new Phyrexian block. But it will probably still be drafted back to front, as yeah. opposed to back then when it was the same way. Well, it, it was con- the, the draft format has been confirmed as Theros, 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 then Born of the Gods, Theros, Theros. Then Journey to Nyx, Born of the Gods, Theros. I see. So the last time we did see that was Scars of Meriden, and that's when they changed the draft format, actually. That's when they changed it to be reverse drafted. Right. I, so. I'm pretty sure I saw it on Maru's Tumblr. Anyways, it'll be a while before we actually get to the part where we need to start worrying about how we draft Journey into Nyx. But. Yeah, it's like a whole year away almost. Yeah. Um, now, there will be three Planeswalkers in Theros. Uh, that's probably because they, they tend to like five Planeswalkers in an entire block, and I guess we're only going to see one in the in uh, Born of the Gods and Journey to Nyx. So we're seeing three Planeswalkers. One is Elspeth, and the other two are brand new. So there was a lot of there was a lot of stuff which saying, oh, if Elspeth's there, then Karn's obviously going to be there. Well, no, because we're having two new characters. So who knows? 
No idea. Or have they been revealed as, as completely new? Well, I mean, they stated that one of the planeswalkers is Elspeth. Well, we're going into details whether that was Terrell or Knight Arant, and chances are it'll just be Elspeth 3. So, I imagine yeah, when they say I, I, two new planeswalkers, they mean two brand new characters as opposed to we're going to see Sorin Mark 3 and Nyssa Mark 2. Yeah, actually, that's actually, interesting. Actually, now that I've touched on Nyssa, they have confirmed there are no elves. <laughs> Set without elves, that's, that's not been for a while. Yeah, um, but there's no elves. Um, there's going to be Minotaurs, Gorgons, Hydras, unsurprisingly, but no elves. Hydra Tribal! <laughs> you heard it here first. <laughs> I'm sure I said this last week. Actually, I was listening to a podcast earlier <laughs> today time. which said Hydra Tribal, so we're not actually first. But, but didn't, didn't I say this in the last episode? <laughs> I don't know, did you? I've been, I've been shouting about Hydra Tribal for ages. I want it to be a thing. It sounds so cool. Uh, now, in a complete contrast to what we've just had, this is mostly a mono-coloured set. There will be a little uh, multi-coloured cards, but mostly mono-coloured cards. So, yeah. Uh, there's also going to be more legendary permanents than normal. Uh, it's, not, uh, it's not as bad as Kamigawa was, but it will be above average for a block. Yeah. I mean, the problem with Kamigawa is when you were drafting it, you had to actually seriously watch for too many legends. Yeah. However, now that we've got the new change with the legendary rule, we probably have to worry a little bit less about it. That's true. It would work a lot, a lot better now. Plus, all you did was play, uh, the bro- the brothers, um, what are they called again? The one, the, the two legendaries which could actually be on the battlefield at the same time. And yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, Trying to think if there's anything else about Theros in particular we learned. I mean, we've seen a lot of artwork, but I'm not going to try describing artwork because that, no. that doesn't quite work. <laughs> it doesn't quite have the same effect of seeing it. Uh, I mean, there, there's a god for each color. There's all the creatures you mentioned. There's three artworks for um, Elspeth kicking ass and taking Hydra heads. Um, well, we know how the uh, the pre-release is kind of going to. Or at least we know one of the gimmicks from the pre-release. Yeah, so that that information came out... Well, clearer information came out today. So we're getting at the pre-release... Um, I'm not quite sure if this, I guess it's a choice of a hero card? I'm not entirely sure how this is working. But they, they've created new cards called hero cards. Now, these are not playable in games of magic. These do not have the traditional magic, the gathering backs. So these, this is not a new card type which can be played in your regular deck. This is a special card type exclusively for the various events which are coming out during the Theros block. Um, now, the hero cards stay in the command zone as far as we understand. They start in the command zone at the beginning of the game, a bit like your commander does at the beginning of Commander. And they have, uh, each of them give you an ability which you can use throughout the game. So as an example, the hunter uh, allows you to tap the hunter card and target creature you control gets plus one, plus one until end of turn. And I'm not quite sure how many of these cards are. I think there may just be the five. Well, there's been five shown. Yeah. Um, I think that might be five that you choose between at the pre-release. And then you can... I'm not sure if there's any more different heroes you get or if every card you have a chance to get later is going to be a leveled up version of that hero. Let's see. Okay, that's, oh, that is one thing we also know with the pre-release. A bit like how we used to have to pick a guild back in the days of Gatecrash and Return to Ravnica. You will have to pick a pre-release box and they are monocolored as I understand. Mm. Probably following one of the deities because as we said there's five monocolored deities. 
and there's a specific hero card in each of the five pre-release boxes. So if you go for the hunter, that may be green, for example. I think you can tie each of these in quite well, actually, yeah, looking at the five wise, artworks. Philosopher blue, Avenger black, warrior red, hunter green, that makes sense. Actually, uh, it looks like the artwork for the hunter has a slight red tinge, so it might be the other way around. Hunter may be red. The warrior craft Oh yeah, okay, I suppose that's, that's... You got prevent damage, tap a creature, death touch, pump, and haste. I mean... I wasn't looking at the abilities there, yeah, I was just worry. looking at the artwork. <laughs> Anyways, uh, if, you, if you're interested, there was an article today, so the 24th, by Dave Guskin called The Path of the Hero. You can look at each of these five cards. Um, now, so as we said, there's five different monocolor boxes, as far as I understand. Each of them has a different hero card, and we can now see how they're tied into colors. Um... Now, you keep those cards. You don't actually use them on the day. You just keep a hold of them. Um, now, when it comes to the Theros release, so obviously pre-releases at the weekend, the Friday afterwards is the proper release event, you will be able to complete uh, the Hero's Path, um, which is a poster with a puzzle on it or something along those lines. And should you be able to um, discover the answer or solve the path or whatever it is, you will get a second Hero card. So you should now at this stage have two hero cards, assuming you attended the pre-release and were able to attend the Friday Night Magic afterwards, so the release event. Yeah. And again, you just keep a hold of this card, you don't do anything with it. Now, on game day, which I think happens three, four weeks later, it'll be October the 19th and 20th at any rate, you get to face the Hydra. So there's this deck which is going to be sort of self-run. If you've ever played Horde Magic, then you have an idea of how this works. If you've ever played the World of Warcraft dungeon decks, or some of the newer raid decks from the World of Warcraft trading card game, it's a similar sort of thing where the deck plays itself and it sort of plays as this um, it's a bit like a computer-controlled enemy, except for obviously there's no computer, it's just a deck which has rules of how you play it. And uh, you bring a standard deck, you bring the hero cards you've collected, you're only allowed to use two, so you collect all five, that's just giving you options as opposed to giving you more power, but you'll be able to use your standard deck, um, this these hero cards you've got, and you need to try to defeat this Hydra. And I assume you get something should you do, was there something, I think you get a, a, another hero card which illustrates and commemorates your victory, it says here. So if you're yes. able to beat this Hydra, then you get more random stuff. And apparently that then will help you in the next set. Yeah, so chances are after this, um, we're going to see Born of the Gods have a very similar structure and then Journey to Next have a very similar structure. So we're going to be collecting hero cards with different abilities, uh, using these to fight end bosses, if you want to phrase it in that sort of way. I don't think we've got a... It's called the Face the Hydra Challenge deck. So I guess challenge decks is what we'll be playing against. I guess that's their sort of proper name. And, yeah. Uh, yeah, we'll be beating these um, for achievements on Planeswalker, points.com as far as I understand, and extra cards. But I don't think any of these can be used in your regular game of Magic. So if you don't really care for gimmicks, you can probably completely ignore it. If you do care for gimmicks, this is pretty unique for Magic. Obviously, we have seen it before in the World of Warcraft trading card game if you play that. Or maybe you could even consider um, Jewel of the Planeswalkers. Some of the boss fights in Jewel of the Planeswalkers is a very some, well, similar affair. But Yeah, the final boss is kind of almost like a similar thing. Except there's obviously some kind of AI actually controlling it rather than making random decisions. Uh, have you 
um, got to the end of Jewel of the Planeswalkers 2014. I've played Ramaz. I've played against the final boss, yeah. Yeah, Ramaz, as far as I understand, keeps drawing the same cards in the same order and playing the same cards in the same order. So oh, okay, I've only played against him once, but yeah, that sounds <clears> like it's I, I think similar I'm, to this. Yeah, I played against him twice, both on uh, either difficulty, and yeah, it follows an exceptionally similar structure. You know, it's it's always exploration turn one, which allows him to ramp and thus become so powerful. Ah, see, I assumed that he would get that a reasonably large amount of time, if not any time, every time anyway, because, um, I mean, he's playing against two people, so exploration actually gives him a chance to keep up in resources, whereas if he never had it, it would be kind of pointless. Yeah, unfortunately, it is, it's the exact same card draws, and, I, I mean, I've never tried milling him to see what effect that would have, but he's always okay. played the same sequence of cards in pretty much the same order, so... I imagine uh, milling him would be quite terrible, considering that your ally is trying to damage him, and you're trying to mill him, so it's kind of like a horrible mishmash of alternate win conditions. Yeah, not a genius idea. No. Right. Uh, I think that's all we need to say about Theros, however, that wasn't all that was revealed, so um, in case you're not aware, this is Magic's 20th anniversary this year, I'm not entirely sure what date, but that's not too relevant. What is relevant is they're releasing another From the Volts, as they do every year, however, this is From the Volts 20, and it's going to have 20 cards in it, unlike 15, and it's going to have a card from a winning World or Pro Tour deck from the year. So, um, everything from 1993 up to 2012, there will be a card which was in the winning deck of that year. So, we've had this picture for a long time of this uh, old woman sort of casting some sort of bluish spell, and everybody said Mother Runes. Yeah. And it's not, because we've now been revealed some of the cards, and that particular artwork is tied to Impulse, which is apparently from a 1997 deck. We have had a whole bunch of other cards revealed. Um, him to Torak? Uh, I usually say Turak. Turak? I'm not sure how it's supposed to be pronounced. Um, that's in this with new art. Chroma's Vengeance also has new artwork. Gilded Lotus has new artwork. Inkai's Servant of Oni is there. Um, Venser Servant Savant is new artwork. Cruel Ultimatum is new artwork. And the big kicker, which unfortunately has skyrocketed the prices to somewhere in the $300 mark from what I've been reading, Jace the Mind Sculptor. Yeah. I mean, the card itself is only worth... I mean, when you're saying 300 the card is only worth 80 I think. So the, the rest of the pack still needs to make it up. But... That's that's quite a, an all-star to have in this. Now, Jace, it doesn't have new artwork. Um, however, it is obviously in foil, a special foiling process they use for all the From the Vaults uh, cards. So if you need a foil Jace, um, this <laughs> may become the easiest way to get one. Not necessarily the cheapest way to get one. Yeah. Um, I'm that not quite sure quite what else to say, except for you thought Commander's Arsenal was going to be expensive. <laughs> well, it was expensive. Um, well, yeah, this is even better or even more expensive or whatever you want to put it as. Yeah, I, I love how the RRP for From the Fools 20, because it includes the five extra cards, has jumped from the incredible price of $35 to $40. Uh, okay. <laughs> I don't think that anywhere will represent the markup it's about to get in the real world, let's call it. No. Um, Although, l- looking at the... Uh, like the years that it's from, 
I'm actually intrigued as to what the other cards could be. Cause, I mean, especially if you look at like 1993. I mean, what's it going to be? A Sarah Angel? <laughs> there weren't that many like particularly powerful cards that people were playing that they can actually reprint. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I obviously I don't know much about like the early decks of Magic. I, I'm not a constructed player. I hopefully have made this very clear throughout saying it a lot of the time uh, on Twitter and on the podcast. I don't know Constructors, so I don't know the decks, but... Um, well, the Championship decks at that point has, like, one of each of the moxes and stuff. They're they're kind of the basis of what oh. would look like a leg- uh, vintage deck right now. Surely they will just put in Black Lotus, Foil, New Artwork, <laughs> screw the reserve list. That's, that's clearly going to go in here. And it will be retailing at $40, and you can pick up your Foil Black Lotus and your Foil Jason Mind Sculptor and, you know... But I don't think there was even a Pro Tour back then either, was there? I think it was well, just World Championships in 94 and stuff. Yeah, I think Worlds was the early one. So they have said um, it's based on a winning Worlds or Pro Tour deck of the year. Mm, interesting. So the earlier <laughs> I mean, times will probably be from Worlds and later on will be the Pro Tour once that's sort of kicked off. Although it's funny that the Worlds deck from 1994 that won, um, actually the only things other than land that it had playsets of were Swords to Plowshares and Sarah Angel. Everything else is like a one or two of, because it was all one of each mocks and everything. So it, it it could be a lot of different cards, just because the deck is full of one-offs. Um, now, I'm interested about what they're going to do for 2012, because I know some of the highlighted cards include Liliana of the Veil, double four Planeswalkers. That would, that'd be, that would be insane. Like That would just... That would really skyrocket the value of this. I've got a feeling that it could be in Treat the Angels myself, because I think of of everything I remember from last year, uh, actually the year before that, Hain's Miracle deck was sort of the standout star of the year. It was, but looking at the cards in the deck, I think in Treat the Angels is like really narrow and not something that's as likely to get printed in this. I'd maybe expect from that deck something more along the lines of Tamio or um, Terminus. Oh, not Terminus. That would I mean, excite me. The, the card that was all over the place in 2012, Pro Tours and stuff, was actually probably um, Huntmaster of the Fells. That saw four of in so many decks, and it, it was that was the point at which it was the most expensive as well. The thing, I think, which will stop Hon Master being in consideration, it is a double face card, and they have stated over and over and over and over again that double face cards are just not something they can sort of do, you know, as minor things here and there. You know, if they're going to do a double face card in something, it's going to be because it's like a major mechanic of a block. They're not going to be able to just print double face cards, you know, yeah, as sort that's, of. That's a point. I mean, I mean, reading Marrow's blog, he's asked about this all the time, and he basically goes, the, the financial cost behind it just doesn't make it viable unless it's going to be, you know, like Innistrad or like Dark Ascension, where there are a lot of them, you know, because it's just, yeah, it doesn't just right. make the money, the financial sense. So I don't think we're going to see a double-faced card in any sort no. or so. I'm not sure what else. I think I'll just have to wait and see. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm happy to wait and see. I mean, it's it's already really expensive. I've tried pre-ordering from two different places. If the prices are too much, then I'm just going to have to walk away, unfortunately. Um, 
Yeah. What are the price? What are the prices looking like so far? Or have you not had anything at all? I've only been looking in random places. I've been like looking properly. I haven't even looked on eBay or anything like that. But I've been seeing like three to four hundred dollar mark floating wow. around. And I'll be honest. I think if it goes north of a hundred pounds, I'm going to be concerned. I mean, I would be surprised if that's where it went. But yeah, at that point, it's just I just can't consider spending that much money on supplementary product just to make my commander deck look a bit nicer. Because this is all it's really doing. It's not like I can draft with this. So it's not no. like <laughs> when I went out and bought tons of Modern Masters, I could draft with all of it. So. Well, I mean, I can pretty much guarantee that every, well, maybe not every, but almost every card that's printed in this will make it into my cube anyway, or I already have in my cube. So getting a nice from the vault version would be nice, and I can probably use all 20 cards. But, yeah, oh, anything over 100 is just insane. Yeah. I don't think I can personally justify spending that much on 20 cards. Yeah. No matter how nice. That is definitely <laughs> my feeling. I mean, yeah, you could, like, I know how much a foil Jason Mind Sculptor is, and it's north of 100. So if somebody says, well, obviously it has to be more than that, then I understand. But I just can't justify yeah. it. I mean, I do not own a Jason Mind Sculptor for the reason I'm not going to spend that much money on a card. I am incredibly intrigued to see whether some stores who have historically stuck to RRP prices for their customers in the, show, in the store just as a sort of loyalty thing, like a reward for being customers of yeah. their store. I'm intrigued to see whether they actually stick to that for this because it's going to be a lot higher value than RRP than most other things. Like, for example, from the Vault's Legends, I was able to get from a, a store that does this for the RRP when it was selling for about 80 now that's about a forty-five pound difference, I think. Whereas this is going to be probably about hundred pound difference from the RRP. Yeah. So I'm intrigued to see whether that continues. If it does, then I'll be a very happy person. But otherwise, yeah, I might not be getting one. <laughs> I was literally be there just confirming my second pre-order. So, uh, but it is as I said, it's dependent on price. Because <laughs> yeah, I'm not just going to write a blank check and go fill that in when you know and just send me a box in the mail. You know, not that stupid. Yeah, I think I think that would be a bit silly. You never know how big this could get. There's still a lot of cards to be revealed. Mm-hmm. We know eight out of twenty. So yeah, and I mean the price tag on those eight, even if you don't. In- consider foils is already almost, well, it's probably about 80 to £100. I don't know what it is in dollars, about 150 maybe. Yeah, it's, it's, this is just going to be silly. Yeah, and there's still another 12. That's only 40% of the set oh. of cards. Actually, now, saying we're talking about stuff from San Diego Comic Con, you know what yep. else is silly? The black on black planeswalkers, they are going for about £250. Jeez. On eBay. I did look that one up because I was like, I'm interested. How much is, oh my good God, I do not need those planeswalkers that badly. Yeah, see, I was interested and I thought these were really cool to have just from a collector's point of view. Yeah. But the the problem is the actual inflation between the normal cards, because the normal cards aren't really all that expensive. No. In terms of planeswalkers, they're fairly cheap. The, the difference between them and the black-on-black versions is so much that it's just the cards you're buying just don't seem worth it just for that slight change. Just the fact that the artwork's different. Yeah. I could never justify that at all. No, but no, not at all. I know a few collectors who will be very upset if they can't get their hands on it. So, if I win the know. lottery on Friday, I'll go buy them. But yeah. unless, I <laughs> unless I win the lottery, then it's not happening. 
Anyways, um, let's move on from From the Vaults, because there's even more stuff has been announced. Magic the Gathering Commander 2013 has been announced. Mm. Or sorry, 2013 edition, but like they had the 2012 uh, edition of Plane Chase. So we're getting five brand new Commander decks, which I'm sure everybody will be happy about. Uh, this will be coming out on November the 1st. Um, now, the original Commander decks were all wedges, so there were one colour and there are two enemy colours. These ones are all going to be shards, so it's going to be one colour and there are two allied colours. So, you know, Naya and Grixus and Bant, and we've spoke about them before. Um, it's going to be $30 a deck, 100-card deck, obviously. Um, there's going to be 51 new cards created, uh, which will obviously only be legal initially in eternal formats, but as with Scavenging Ooze, who knows when they may transition to standard. We've got two preview cards already, two preview commanders from this already. Yep. So we have a Javela Nefalia Scourge, who is a Grixis commander. She is one blue, black, red, uh, 1-3 legendary creature vampire wizard with flying. And uh, this seems to be a common template. When she enters the battlefield, um, some effect will happen based on the mana you spent to cast her. So, particular for her, each player will exile the top X cards of his or her library, where X is the amount of mana spent to cast Javela. Whenever she attacks, you may cast an instant of sorcery exiled with it while paying the mana cost. And that's not on hit, so that's actually pretty cool. Because one of the problems with creatures versus their ability is usually it's really hard to actually hit in the first place. Yes. So you might be throwing her away on a bit of a sacrificial attack, but you'll still get to cast something for free. Yep. Uh, the other commander is a Jun commander. He is uh, Prosh, Sky Raider of Kerr, I want to say, but I'm not quite sure exactly how to pronounce the name. He's three black, red, and green. He's a 5-5 legendary creature dragon, unsurprisingly, with flying. Whenever you cast Prosh, Sky Rider of Kerr, put X-01 red kobold creature tokens named Kobolds of Kerr Keep onto the battlefield where X is the amount of mana spent to cast Prosh. Sacrifice another creature and Prosh gets plus one, plus zero until the end of turn. <laughs> he doesn't seem that exciting, but I'm sure a lot of people will be happy to see the Kobolds of Kerr Keep return to the game. Yeah, this is true. That, that's probably the, bit, the only part of it that I'm really happy about. The, the problem is, if I was wanting a big giant dragon to play in those colours, I would probably just play Cartus. Yeah. But this guy, he looks quite cool. And yeah, Cobalt. Woo! So that's two of the 51 cards, um, which are coming out in, well, new cards in Commander 2013. Obviously, there's going to be a lot, a lot of reprints. And if you don't have a command tower, because you never got Commander when it first came out, then, uh, undoubtedly each of them will have a command tower and probably a soul ring and probably a dark seal ingot, although you can get that from M14 nowadays. Uh, I'd be quite happy if they didn't put some of those things in it. I've got a feeling soul just ring. Just for a variety. I think soul ring and command tower kind of have to be in, because, if you never got a, a commander deck, or you haven't been playing for a while, you probably don't have these, and everybody else does. I don't feel a bit unfair, but yeah. Um, if you want to see those previews, go to mtgcommander.net. That's the home of the official commander rules. Uh, it's not a magic. Wizards don't actually coordinate the rules for commander. They just print product every now and then. So, um, yeah, yeah. different website, mtgcommander.net. If you want to see those preview cards, nice. Last piece of news. And, uh, it is with sad, um, it's with sadness I have to announce this, but the extended format is officially being retired. Yep. Uh, extended. Yes, extended. That was a terrible <laughs> pun I put in there. Um, obviously modern, Cray. 
is <laughs> they've been trying to push modern. Apparently, I didn't know extended used to be the last seven years, then they changed to the last four years, and that apparently practically killed extended. But well, it ended up just being double standard. Yeah, which usually meant that people just took their standard decks that were playing and played them for an extra two years. Yeah, and I know a couple of years ago they created modern, sort of with the idea of making this the, the new hotness in a way. And uh, modern, uh, well, modern was there to help kill extended and potentially in some way to help replace vintage and legacy down the line. At any rate, extended is now dead. Um, you'll be able to sanction events up to August the seventh, um, and the events must be run before October the eighth. So if you really want to give extended the last hurrah, make sure. You tell your local store owner before August the 7th to organize something and you have until October the 8th to officially play your last extended format event. However, obviously, if you want to play with your friends, nothing's stopping you there. Um, extended is also being removed on August the 7th from Magic Online. So after that date, no more extended online. And after October the 8th, no more officially extended events offline. So... Yeah, if you want to do your last hurrah, if you want to start playing your infect decks versus your guild decks, then um well, or, or you one more play. chance to play Valakit or uh maybe some kind of Eldrazi deck. <laughs> or just play modern, but you know. Yeah, true. <laughs> yeah, I I want to play an extended event before it, it goes away, but I it's not like I've got a deck in mind. I mean, who knows? Nobody plays extended anymore, obviously. No, that's true. Right, I think that's all the news. Yeah, what news this week? Um, so, how about you take us away with the main topic? Okay, uh, well, looking at Magic 2014, um, it's obviously a lot simpler in terms of mechanics and stuff than we've had for Ravnica Block, because it's, well, it's a core set. Um, so I thought it's probably a good time to have a look at sort of the the basics of the game and go back to the basics of drafting. So I'd like to maybe do a little bit on uh, just if you're new to drafting or even if you've been doing it for a while, just a bit on the fundamentals. Because I've, I've actually, I, I got asked by uh, David on Twitter um, about drafting strategy earlier today and mm. thought, well, yeah, why not? Let's talk about it. So where to start? Well, I suppose... The first thing you do is open a pack. What do you see? You see probably a mediocre rare, sometimes an amazing one, but probably, I'm gonna go with most of the time you, d- you don't see something that goes, oh you pick it because then why am I even telling you anything? You already know what you're doing, you're just picking that card and going. But I mean, when you, when you open a pack, you, you obviously the first thing you do is you check if the rare is a, a bomb and then grab it if it is. And, lament a little if it isn't but um, often it won't be so you have to have a look at the rest of the pack and see what you've got and there's always going to be or almost always going to be at least something worth taking first pick so it's a case of seeing how many things there are that are worth taking and then deciding what direction you want to go in so say you you open a pack and it has a, a doom blade for example as a piece of removal it has a really good blue flyer like air elemental or in this set it's the other it's the other one air star, air star. <laughs> we both got it at the same time yeah or the, or the yeah the other one in this set which is air servant 
and then you just the rest of the pack maybe some combat tricks some basic creatures um i tend to always go for something along the lines of the removal or a really impressive creature preferably a flyer like ser angel or air servant but it obviously depends on what your preference is and also take a little look at the rest of the pack because if there's a doom blade there which honestly i would probably say is the best first pick out of these cards um you might want to still consider what you're passing in the pack. Like, if you've, if you've got a Doomblade there, but you've also got a Liturgy of Blood, which is another black removal spell, and then you've got a couple of nice black creatures, you might want to consider taking the card that isn't going to make the person next to you think, oh, there's lots of black stuff, I'm going to take something black. Because then in pack two, when they pass it back to you, you'll get lots less stuff. Anyway. So, I mean, that's that's usually how I look at the first bit when you open your first pack. What do you think, Craig? Um, I don't know how much I actually worry about what I'm passing with the first few picks, because, I mean, we've definitely spoken about signaling in the past, and that is important. Like, if you completely just ignore the signals, you're going to get something rubbish. But for the first few picks, I almost just go and pick the best cards, and then we start reading the signals and seeing what colors are going to work. I don't necessarily worry too much about what I'm passing, but that's also maybe just because I don't have the the, the mind, the, the space in my head to actually think about what I'm passing and how that's going to affect people down the line. Because I always think within the first few picks, you can't read too much into signals. There's too many cars and not enough have been taken out. That's true. That uh, I don't worry too much really early on about signaling and what's in there. I mean, I'd probably still slap a Doomblade because it's, you know, even if it's a splash... I can happily splash black for one of the best removal spells in the format. Uh, yeah, you know, I that's... don't end up running full black. So, you know, uh, signaling is something I don't worry about immediately off the bat. But um, That's true. Ha- have you mentioned bread yet? Oh, okay. Um, so, yeah, let, let's talk about bread quickly then. So, bread is an, ac- an acronym that basically tells you what to pick in a simplistic kind of way um, so the first thing the B of bread is bomb so if there's something in the pack that can just win games on its own it is a bomb and you should take it because it'll win you games so it's usually pretty strong there's not really any debate in that I don't think no 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 that, that <laughs> it's just a bomb you take it <laughs> especially in pack one anyway I mean it might be different later on if you know if it's pack two and you've you're quite heavily into different colours or, or even worse pack three and you're not even anywhere near that colour. That's a shame when that happens. But yeah, so I mean if it's in pack one you always want that. Um then the second part, R, is removal. Basically if you after bombs, the next best thing you can have is something to deal with your opponent's bombs. So say they've got some kind of giant flying beater which is the sort of basic bomb that you find in every set, then it might be good to have this Doom Blade in your hand to go, oh no you don't, unless it's black and then you're still in the same <laughs> predicament. <laughs> um, the more answers you have to your opponent's stuff, the more that you'll be able to stop them from winning, which is obviously helpful, because if they're not winning, then you're not losing. After removal, you have evasion. 
And this can be flying, which it normally is, or it can be some kind of can't-be-blocked creature, um, some kind of land-walk creature. Um, although, of course, in some situations, these types of evasion can be cancelled out. I, you're not playing against that land, your opponent has lots of flyers or reach as well. But the point is, if you've got a lot of evasion creatures or some evasion creatures, that gives you the chance to win even if the board gets clogged up with stuff. So it's usually quite helpful to have them. And also, in the case of stuff like flying, if you have zero flyers and you're a bit light on reach creatures as well, you're kind of just opening it up for your opponent to go, I'll play all my flyers and you're dead. There are so many times I've drafted decks and completely ignored flyers and lost because of it. Just going, I don't need flyers in green and red. Oh, 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 oh. And then also again, the reach creatures, of course. (laughs) And the next thing is advantage. So this kind of, this is a little bit more of a complicated one because advantage can mean multiple things. Sometimes it means card advantage. As in, you have a card that can get you two things, like, for the price of one. Like, for example, the simplest thing that does this is maybe Divination. You spend one card, you get two cards. Um, or Mind Rot, you spend one card, they lose two cards. Um, however, it isn't always as simple as that. There's sometimes something like a creature with an end of the battlefield ability, so you're getting the creature left, and you're also getting the ability, which may or may not be an ability that's worth a card on its own. In some cases, it could be something like when a creature comes into play, deal two damage to target creature, in which case you're getting a shock, which is a card, as well as your creature, which is a card. So that's that's the card advantage side of advantage, but it could also just be tempo advantage. And what that means is it doesn't really matter how many cards you've generated if you're able to kill the opponent quick enough and keep them from doing the things they do. So if you can play things that slow your opponent down while kind of contributing to your own plan, that does help as well. So something that does this, for example, would be Imposing Sovereign in M14. So this is a 2-1 creature for 2, which is fine, but then the advantage you're getting is that every creature your opponent plays enters the battlefield tapped, which gives you much more time to beat them down before they can block. However, this isn't as important, I don't think, as the card advantage side of advantage. So I would definitely look at that first. And then D, which is just dudes. Although it's at the end of bread, it's not saying that you should not prioritize creatures until the very end. It means that you should always be keeping in mind that you have the right number of creatures to make up a deck. So you want to have creatures, um, enough creatures for a start, probably about 15 16 um depending on your deck that could be more it could be less if you've got just a really aggressive deck that wants to play creatures every turn you might want to have 20 creatures and if you're playing lots of spells that are really powerful you might skimp a little bit but you still probably want about 12 or 13 i mean i played a young pyromancer deck a deck with a couple of them at the pre-release and i run a lot more spells than usual because spells also met creatures Yes. As long as there's a pyromancer on the board. So if you've got more than one pyromancer, one young pyromancer, then that's quite a dependable option. Um, If you've only got one, it obviously becomes a little bit riskier. Um, But I mean, as long as the spells are kind of holding their own. um, I mean, if you've got, say, ten removal spells, 
um, don't go, oh no, but that only leaves me enough space to play 13 creatures, therefore I'll need to put three more creatures in and take out three removal spells, because the removal spells are just as good since it gets rid of one of their creatures. And often you'll be able to use them to get rid of their best creatures, and you're only playing your 13 best creatures, so they should outclass what's left in their deck in general. <laughs> yep. Um so, I mean, that's, that actually also kind of goes back to why removal is really good. Um, but yeah, if you don't have enough guys in your deck, this is a mistake I've seen a lot of new drafters make all the time, is they just don't prioritize creatures enough. They go, oh, this spell lets me regenerate one of my creatures, so that's really good. Or this gains me lots of life, so that's really good. Um, so they'll put all this in their deck, and then they'll be left with maybe ten creatures, and it just, their opponent plays three or four creatures across the first few turns of the game, uh, they play one and just get completely overwhelmed, yeah. which means they never really get a chance to do anything. Yeah, I think I think. Um, oh, my voice is going. Enchantments are potentially one of the biggest pitfalls. I think uh, newer players fall into. You know, this can make my creature a whole lot better. You know, I can move my dude a D up to a bomb a B because you know I play this card in him and it just makes him so much more powerful. Unfortunately, yeah. then, the R removal kills both the bomb you've just created and the enchantment, and you've lost yeah. two for one. And that that's, you know, that you're giving your opponent the advantage, the card advantage there, uh, yeah. and just playing a lot weaker cards in your deck. It's uh, That's also a common pitfall people do. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of enchantments, um, especially, actually, in M14, yeah. which don't really do enough to be worth it. Um, because they open you up to this chance of losing two cards just for the price of one. Whereas there's actually a couple that are quite good. Um, for example, there's the troll, there's troll hide. So that's an enchantment that kind of protects itself. You play it when you've already, when you've got mana open to actually regenerate and then you're kind of getting away with it a bit, a bit more. And then there's a few that are just so good when you put it on a creature that it does make them really big and scary and hard to deal with. Like, for example, Mark the Vampire gives something plus two, plus two in lifelink. So you can put that on something and it just makes it pretty much unstoppable while also putting you out of reach of your opponent's stuff. Um, however, the problem is, while one or two of these might be really good in a deck, if it's if it's the right deck to suit them, um, having too many enchantments in your deck just means that you get two for one constantly and also you might not draw the creature to put the enchantment on yeah and without without a creature the enchantment does absolutely nothing so that kind of sucks when that happens yeah um but yeah so and like i said earlier actually um the life gain thing as well um that's another thing that a lot of new players overvalue because they think well if the part of this is to reduce my opponent's life to zero, then if I can gain life, then they can't do that to me. Therefore, I won't lose. I think we've probably mentioned before, but the problem with life gain is that you're not actually solving the problem that's making you need to gain life. So if you're gaining, say, seven life off of an angel's mercy and your opponent's hitting you with a 3-3 three, three on the on the board then, yeah, you're gaining two turns, but you're losing a card, and unless you can then deal with that creature at some point later, you're not actually ahead at all. You're just throwing away cards to gain potential time that might not get you anywhere. Yeah. I mean, if you consider that, that could be a creature which could, you know, deal with 
their 3-3, or a removal spell which deals with a 3-3, or just a, a card which can actually deal with the situation as opposed to just trying to buy you two more turns and, you know. Exactly, and I mean, a lot of the time, uh, the time when you draw this card, it's not even buying you that much, because in Limited, if you're way behind, like in a draft, then often your, your opponent's hitting you for six or seven damage. So that one card that you've drawn and used up your entire turn to gain seven life is gaining you another turn. Whereas if you just had the other turn in the first place where you drew an actual card that done something instead of just delaying things, then you'd be better off because your opponent then hasn't had another chance to draw cards and play things. So you're just losing out on time overall, even though it feels like you're gaining a little bit of time. However, in some cases, life gain can be okay when it's on the back of something else. So a creature which has lifelink, that's fine because life is a bonus. Or in some cases, there's some things that just gain you so much life that they end up being kind of worth it. But usually you want to get something along with your life gain to make it worth playing the card in the first place. Yeah, I mean, Solemn Offering is a perfectly serviceable card. It destroys, as I remember, an artifact or enchantment and yes. gives you four life. I mean, that's just, the life gain is just tacked on. That's just a, a bonus. Yeah, exactly. So you're not losing out. Um, although, obviously, if they end up not having any enchantments or artifacts, you can't play it. Um, but yeah, you, you could have that in the sideboard and then bring it in if you see awesome enchantments. And, and there's definitely a number of enchantments which are good. Like, auras are a lot more risky than enchantments which aren't auras. Yeah. Um, I mean, unless, unless you're talking about, um, stuff like claustrophobia and pacifism, which you put on your opponent's creatures. Yeah, but I mean, you got stuff like Angelic Accord, which is quite a powerful effect. The problem is, um, trying to build, with something like Angelic Accord, which requires you to gain four life each turn, trying to build a, a life gain deck and have life gain effects like Solemn Offering just to trigger it is probably not the most genius idea because you're, you're, if, you, if Angelic Accord's, Angelic Accord's on the table and you've got the cards and how it's gaining you life, that's good. If Angelic Accord's on the table and you don't have the cards, then it's a four mana do nothing enchantment. Yeah. If you've got the life gain cards but not the angelic accords, then you're playing life gain cards and all the problems we've mentioned before still exist. Yep. So, um, yeah, even enchantments which aren't sitting on creatures can still be risky. But, yeah. but with all this said, I would like to say enchantments are a thing in M14. You can certainly make them work very well. Yes. You just have to be aware of the risks. Yes, indeed. Um, and also, as a lot of the cards in M14 that cater to enchantments can be played with enchantments like pacifism and claustrophobia and sensory deprivation where there's basically no risk of you losing out. Mm-hmm. I mean, if they have an auto-reap for the creature you pacifism, then yeah, okay, they've got you. But <laughs> in the vast majority of cases, it's not going to be too bad. Yeah, I mean, stuff like pacifism is a removal spell. Yes. Just because it's an enchantment, I mean, it just deals with the creature. The creature can't do anything. I mean, okay, if it's got activated abilities, it can do something, but it's effectively a removal spell, something like pacifism. So, yeah, don't, yeah, don't look true. at enchantment. Or w- <laughs> I'm worried we've said we've been too strongly on the anti-artifact uh, enchantment <laughs> message that it's we've almost said it's unplayable. I mean, that's not entirely the case, but it's just be very aware of the the dangers. Yeah. Although, one thing that did come up for me in a game recently, which I thought was quite funny, is I had Haunted Plate Mail, 
which is the rare, a rare from M14. It's four mana, and it's an equipment, and then you pay four to equip it to creature, and it gives them plus four, plus four. Or if you have no creatures, you can pay zero to turn it into a four-four creature. However, I had another creature which had been passivismed. So I couldn't use that creature, and now I couldn't use my plate mail either, <laughs> which ah. was quite awkward. Yeah. So that's that's something to watch out for if you're playing haunted plate mail, I guess. And something to be happy about if your opponent's playing haunted plate mail. <laughs> yeah, true, true. Okay, so uh, going back a second to creatures, because we kind of talked about it and then went off into a bit of a tangent. Um when you're looking at creatures, and I was talking about also having a sort of good curve of creatures, um, like having them at the right costs. Um, so we said, well, I said that we wanted to have about 15 creatures or something like that. Um, but you also have to make sure that you've got creatures at different mana costs. Because if all your creatures cost a silly high amount, then you'll maybe never get the chance to cast them. And if they're all really cheap, then they'll just get outclassed by your opponent's creatures really quickly. And that's generally why I don't tend to play a large amount of one-drop creatures in any deck that I draft. Because one-drop creatures are usually particularly weak. There are some exceptions, however, such as Elvish Mystic, which basically doubles as a ramp spell and is really useful. Um, but a lot of things like a one mana one one that you just you want to play on turn one to then attack with a bit tends not to be great value because very soon they'll have a two two that can just go, no, that doesn't work. And two twos are pretty much the baseline for everything in draft. Um if your guy's not a two two or better if it's not a 2-2 vanilla creature that does nothing or better, then you maybe shouldn't be playing it. A 1-mana one 1-1 one with an ability gets around that. But, you know, you've got to be careful. Yeah. Um, so, when I say a curve, I would sort of say for a completely average deck with, I don't know, 15 creatures, um, run-of-the-mill draft deck, you'd maybe want to have around 5-2 drops, 5-3 drops, three, four drops and two, five drops. That would look okay to me. But I mean, that you could obviously switch that about a bit. So you could maybe just only have four, three drops and then have a six drop in your deck. And you might have a deck that wants to have a few more six drops because you've got some ways to get land or mana quicker. You might want to have a slightly more aggressive deck which doesn't even play five drops. But that's sort of the baseline that I would look at and then modify according to what kind of stuff you're you're playing. Um, like I say, some decks are completely different, like a control deck where, you know, you're kind of trying to look at where you're casting your other spells in your curve as well. Like my average blue control deck that I draft will have a couple of copies of Divination in it. Therefore, I might not want to have too many three drops, which is a problem at the moment because M14 has a heck of a lot of three drops. <laughs> this is something I've noticed a lot of the time when I've been drafting it so far, okay. is that you always seem to have so many three drops, especially in blue, because you've got all your, you've got your wall of frost, you've got a few three drop flyers, you've got time ebb, you've got cancel, you've got divination, like all the sort of nuts and bolts of a blue deck are at three mana. So it's, it's very difficult to, you know, have an actual curve and not just have a line at three mana. Right. <laughs> um, so, uh, 
just watch out. Basically, it doesn't matter too much if you've got the perfect curve that you wanted, as long as you don't have massive clumps. Um, so as long as you've not got like eight three drops or maybe four or five six drops or something like that, then you're probably okay. Um, just watch out for that when you're drafting. It can often be hard to remember where you've got stuff, but luckily if you're doing a sort of casual draft, you can rearrange things into their mana cost in your pile and then just have a look to see like where you're missing or where you have like extra stuff. And you might want to reevaluate cards differently based on that. Like for example, if I've already got, um, three four drop creatures or say four four drop creatures that's probably about the, the highest I like to have um, I've already got four four drop creatures and they're all reasonably good I'd be happy to play them all um, and then I'm faced with a decision when I've got a four drop creature and a very slightly worse three drop creature suddenly the three drop creature is actually probably better to take because it's something I'm not already overloaded with so you've got the diminishing returns factor of when you've already got enough of something, you don't need to really prioritize things that are very similar. But I mean, there are also some exceptions. Like, for example, say you're playing in Ravnica block, there's all these three mana things that give you extra mana. Um, so if you had a lot of those, you might not want to have too many four drops because, and you might want to have more five drops because you're just going straight from three mana to five mana. Yeah. So that does change your curve a little bit. So there's some things like that to be aware of. Um, but in general, just try and make sure you've got a bit of everything. And when I say a bit of everything, you probably want to max out about six. <laughs> Seven drops or higher, it has to be really good to be playable. Yeah, I mean, ideally once you get up to that sort of point, you want something which is going to come into play and have an immediate effect. You know, yeah. Not something which you kind of have to play wait a turn, see what you can do with it next turn if it survives. I mean, uh, yeah. So, I mean, a good example of a 7-drop I would play in a draft would be Angel of Threnny. Because when it comes out, it, autom- it gets rid of, well, three creatures, if you want, that your opponent controls, as well as giving you something that's going to kill them. So, although it's quite hard to maybe survive until you get to 7-mana when you do, it's going to severely slow down what your opponent was doing and probably stop you from then dying barring some kind of lavax effect to the face yeah um, another thing you might want to look at is what colours you're playing I mean that's probably a, a pretty simple thing um, in terms of a lot of time you might go oh I like playing green so I'll be playing green but the problem is you might not always get those cards. So you need to kind of look at what you're actually taking and how it's going to go. So when you start off in a draft, you'll often go straight for one card. And then some people will base a lot of their future picks on the first card that they took. So if they've taken a black card first, they might then kind of become a bit blind to the other colors in the packs and take a mediocre but playable black card over a really good white card. Um, And then the next pack, the same happens, and that kind of ends up continuing throughout the draft. Obviously, you're probably not going to just be one color anyway, so that might not be as much of an issue. But another thing you might do is you might take one color in pack one and then go, oh, take the best card in pack two, which is a different color, and then you're still going to be kind of edging towards both of those colors. So one thing I like to do is I'll take my my pick from the first pack and then 
if there's something that's almost the best or the best car in pack two of that color, I'll take it and I'll try to stick to those colors or that color to begin with. Um, because then you can kind of just sit in that color and wait for four or five picks and see what colors you're getting past to decide your second color. And then you'll get a lot more stuff in that color than you maybe would have got if you'd picked another color and stuck with those two early. So it's it's kind of about staying open a bit. I, th- I think I've sp- uh, maybe spoke about this um, earlier, about um, the difference between reactive drafting and forcing a draft. Yeah. Like whether you sort of pick the best cards and then wait to see what sort of cards are being passed to you, make a deck based on that, or whether you just go in with the, I'm going green and nobody's going to tell me different sort of attitude. Yeah. yeah. Well, I'm going to try and not copy um, everything I read from a Ben Stark article the other day which was about drafting in easy mode versus drafting in hard mode. However, part of it I am going to mention in that he said you've got, you're drafting in easy mode, which is you take cards that you know are good and just force that. And you'll, if you do this every draft, you'll end up getting some drafts where the cards line up perfectly and you end up with a really, really good deck and you win the draft. Um, however, a lot of the time it won't happen and you'll end up with complete train wrecks, which lose the draft completely. Um, however, there's drafting in hard mode, um, where you actually kind of try and look at what's happening in the draft and you end up with generally more consistent decks that might win sometimes, but when they don't win, they're going 2-1. Like they're winning two games out of the three rounds if there's if it's a three-round draft, which it usually is. Um, and that just, over a longer period of time, just gives you better results than going all in on the same things every time. So, as I was saying about having consistent sort of creatures, um, having a few removal spells in your deck, and then just making sure that you're able to play things across the game as the game progresses, even just having that will get you through drafts fairly well in that you'll win a few games because your deck's just doing stuff when your opponent's isn't really working out. Um, and then you've also got the fact that if your deck's working, as opposed to not doing anything, you've got a chance of beating any other deck because any other deck can fail to do what it's supposed to be doing. As long as your deck isn't failing as well, you, you can actually do something and win a game that might be against a much better deck. Having the best deck in a draft doesn't always get you first place. In fact, I've found that quite a lot of the time it doesn't get you first place <laughs> because you're playing three games and you're you're depending on your deck working in three different matches. And the odds of drawing well in three different matches are not fantastic. So, you know, there's, there's a lot more to it than just having the absolute best draft, uh, best deck in the draft. Yeah. So I wouldn't I wouldn't concern yourself much with having the actual best deck. So, for example, in Innistrad Block, quite a while ago now, the best deck in Innistrad Dark Ascension Draft was considered to be the green-white aggressive deck to begin with. And the problem was, well, it was very strong, too many people often ended up going for it, and then didn't get enough cards to actually make a deck that worked was able to keep playing stuff on every turn and they they had to put in cards that you really didn't, don't want to be playing in your deck in the first place. So you've just 
kind of wasted a lot of your your picks on things that aren't going to get you anywhere. So, Craig, is there anything else you want to maybe just talk about in terms of basics of drafting? Um, I'm not sure if this is this is not necessarily with drafting, although it certainly is to do with the draft. I mean, at the end of um, the draft, people were putting together their cards, they're trying to work out what their deck is, and you know, they they get generally. You know, you're looking for the 23 playables and you want to add in your 17 land. And, uh, especially with M14, there's not many lands you're going to draft which are very playable. I mean, what do we have? Like, Mutavolt is playable, Shimmering Grotto maybe, but you probably only really need that if you're playing three or more colours. And, uh, I think Encroaching Waste is nigh on unplayable. A lot of people get to it and they're like, okay, so I've got all these red cards, I've got all these blue cards, uh, but how many mounted islands are I playing? And um, a lot of people, especially newer people, uh, seem to struggle with this. And I have a very simple formula of how to work this out. All I do is I um, line up all the cards of each color in front of me so I can see all the mana costs. And I just simply count up all the mana symbols. So I count up all the red mana symbols I see on the red cards and write that down. I count up all the blue mana symbols I see on the blue cards, write that down. And then I just try to... Uh, Generally, you know, I end up with some silly number like 23 red symbols and 17 blue symbols. I divide that by two, and that gives me somewhere in the region of like 13 to maybe 17 as a number. And that is basically your lands ready to go. Uh, you know, you've worked out your lands, so you now know you need 10 mountains and 7 islands, and you're done. And occasionally, you, need, you know, you've got... You're out by a few, you know, you're not quite a 17, so you need to, you know, have a look again at your curve and try to work out, well, I've got a lot of low blue, like, you know, one and two and three mana blue cards. And a lot of my red cards are more expensive, so maybe I want a couple more islands just to make sure that Mm. on turn one, on turn two, on turn three, I can actually play my blue cards. But also have to consider, you know, oh, this is a double red card, that's a double red card, that's a double red card, you know. Like, if you have something which is two red and red, then you may actually need to add an extra mountains to make sure that when you hit turn four, you're not sitting on three islands in a mountain and looking at your four drop and going, damn it, I need to play this now, but I can't. So, um, <laughs> that's how I tend to do it. You know, add up your symbols, uh, generally divide by two and then play around with the numbers a little bit. I mean, that, that tends to work out for me. I mean, you will always, at some stage, get mana screwed or mana flooded or color screwed where, you know, all you can draw is the islands and all you've got in your hand are red cards and there's nothing you do about it. That will happen. But I've I've found this to be reasonably effective. I mean, I haven't had too much mana problems. I mean, it gets a lot more complicated once you're in three or four colors. Um, I probably wouldn't advise going into four or five colors in this format. Um, yeah. I mean, there's just there's very little support for it. I mean, the Shimmering Grotto, the Verdant Haven, uh, and the Dark Sealing it. They're, yeah, they're pretty much the only things. That's actually maybe um, I don't maybe that's another thing. If you are planning to go three or more colors, you need to prioritize those cards above others quite a bit because you need more like support for actually generating more than one color of mana than you can get off of your basic lands, obviously. So yeah, um, yeah, maybe I should just throw that in there a little bit. Um, yeah, yeah, so that's that's my advice. I mean, I've I've been asked this quite a lot recently at Friday Night Magic about how to work out what basic plans to play and that's my little trick for doing it so hopefully it can help other people yeah I sometimes use that actually it depends on it depends on what it looks like like what I actually do when I'm uh, coming to put my man in my deck is I'll put things in columns of colour so I'll put all my red cards in one column all my 
blue cards in another column, for example, say I was playing it, is it? And then if I had any multicolored cards that were both blue and red, I would put them in a column in between. And I would put them in descending mana cost. Um, so I'd put my six drops at the top, for example, and then just decrease it down to the lowest. Um, and if there's anything that costs double colored, I would put that at the top of that thing. So say something that was double blue in one, I would put before I put anything that was one blue in two. Um, and then I would just look at it like that. And not only do you get an instant sort of idea of which you have more cards of, you can then also just kind of look at the costs as to how much you have of each thing early. Um, and I tend to actually, in most cases, just go with some kind of, I just go with the intuition of what it looks like. So if my blue pile is only marginally bigger than my red pile, um, and there's a roughly even number of um, double-colored mana in casting costs, I'll just go for nine of that of the higher and eight of the lower. Um, and then if it tends to be even more in one direction, um, like say there's a bit of a, a an obvious difference between the columns, then I'll maybe go for ten of the larger column and seven of the smaller column. Um, I generally tend not to go anything other than 10, 7 and 9, 8 in terms of the split between two colours of land um, it's you generally just don't want to have only 6 land that can produce one of your colours unless you've got basically nothing in that colour um, which is of course entirely a possibility um, however when I start looking at some more complicated mana bases like basically every deck I draft in Dragon's Maze set uh, draft, then I tend to go more towards Craig's method. Um, I'll add up all the symbols of every colour, note that down, um, find out how many sources I have that can produce more than one colour of mana and add that onto my 17 and then I'll divide the symbols by the 17 to find out roughly how many land I should be playing per symbol of that colour. And then I'll, I'll add that up. And then I'll look at it and say, does this look right? Like, for example, I feel like a lot of my important stuff is in black. Do I think that four black sources is enough? Probably not. So I'll then adjust it as opposed to using that as the baseline. Because honestly, I can't look at a five-color mana base and go, yeah, that looks like five mountains, three islands, two swamps, one plains, and one forest. That's just silly. I can't do that. <laughs> I'm sure there's some people who can, but it's a lot easier if you kind of use your uh, your basic numerical way of working it out to get a baseline and then adjust that based on your intuition yeah. of what you've got in front of you. Um, so that might be a little bit more complicated in some ways than just looking at the way that Craig done, you divide by two, um, which will give you a rough number, which is probably good enough anyway, but I tend to be quite meticulous and stuff about anything that has anything to do with numbers. So that's that's kind of more of my problem than anyone else's. <laughs> um, so I maybe wouldn't advise getting quite as in-depth on it. Uh, one other thing I would like to say, if you are, if you do end up drafting three colors, like maybe, you know, you're, you're in Naya, you're kind of hedging your bets and hoping you can get some slivers, you know, you're not, you're not going for slivers, but you're like, if I'm in the colors, you never know, and you, 
you, you know, you're drafting and you're not terribly paying attention to how many of each colour you're taking because you just, you know, you're in the mindset, you're Naya. And you end up, you know, building your deck at the end and you're playing, you know, got a passivism there, passivism there, got my Sarah Angel there, and you're looking at it and you've done your maths and, you know, you're trying to run like two, three planes. <laughs> you should probably think if, you know, if you're looking at like seven of one land, seven another land, and three of the third colour, you should seriously consider just cutting that colour and yeah. just going two colour. Now, yes, that's two removal spells and, mm, I don't know, Sarah Angel, is that a bomb? Probably not. Evasion, definitely. Yeah, I would put it as a bomb. I mean, but, yeah, I mean it, it used to be a rare, it. It used to be a rare <laughs> back in Alpha. Um, well, I mean, it was played as a four of in a World Championship deck back in Alpha. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> I mean, those are three solid white cards. Would I want to run them? Yes. But the risk of just drawing the passivism without the planes, drawing the planes without the passivism, trying to get the double white on your Sarah Angel, it's probably yeah. worth just accepting your losses that you can't play those spells, cutting white completely, and just going two-color, because there will be a lot of games where you either got the white card in hand without the planes, or the planes is on the table, and who knows, maybe you needed the double red for something, and instead you got a damn white source, and that's not doing you any good. If you've got a very narrow sliver of one color and you're in a three or more colors, you may just want to cut it and, you know, it will just make your mana flow more efficiently. You'll be able to actually play your cars more uh, efficiently uh, on time and on target and you won't have to sit with so many dead cars in hand kind of going, I really wish this was something else. You want to avoid that as much as possible in general. But um, I did this in, like... uh, I think both of the drafts we did uh, during the pre-release weekend, I think I ended up with three colours and having to just <laughs> realistically look at what I was playing, you know, two two in a colour or three in a colour, and just going, it's just not worth my effort. These are good spells, but, you know, I may have picked up a random good blue rare, but I'm not in the correct colour. I'm not randomly running that islands for it, so just yeah. cut your losses and... Uh, just that, that reminds me, actually. When I was playing um, at one of the drafts for the pre-release, um, I had I kind of went for a sliver deck. As much as I said I'm going to avoid it for the first while, I saw a couple of nice slivers wheeling, so I was like, yeah, okay, I'll go for it. Um, so I picked up a few, and it ended up drying up completely. Um, so I ended up with a really mediocre sliver deck in uh, Naya Colors. However, if I took one of the colors out, I ended up with just too weak deck, not enough playables, just couldn't actually put a deck together at all. So I had to play all three colours. Um, I did have two mana with slivers, so this did help, um, since they can produce any colour of mana. However, what I then done was I looked at this and thought, right, my deck's not strong enough. It needs something else. So I looked at these these uh, cards I drafted that weren't in my deck, and there was a Doomblade and a Liturgy of Blood. And I thought, right, maybe it's time to get greedy from these mana weft slivers. So I put both in and I put a swamp in. And it probably wasn't a good idea. I never had, the one time I had Liturgy of Blood, no, two times I had Liturgy of Blood in hand, I had either one or zero black sources. I managed to cast Doomblade once and it was off of the actual swamp instead of the mana weft slivers. So, you know, it, it just doesn't tend to work out. <laughs> getting too greedy doesn't always work out like that. However, in the way, in the scenario that Craig mentioned with sort of two pacifisms and a Sarah Angel, um, you might want to look at your two color deck, 
see what it looks like and ask yourself if the pacifisms, not the Sarah Angel, because you can't play a Sarah Angel that's got double Y in its cost off of three planes or whatever. So I'd have a look at my deck and say, do the pacifisms add enough to this deck that I just want to splash white for the two pacifisms? Um, in a lot of cases, I'll end up doing it, um, but it might not always be the right idea. So just see if, if they kind of make up for any weaknesses that are already there in your deck um, and just work out whether you, you feel brave enough to play them in your deck and add a couple of planes. But the, be aware that you will have the situation of having one without the other and never being able to cast it or having a planes that is essentially a colourless land in your deck. So there, there's always the risk, but sometimes it's worth it. Yeah, that's true. Uh, with, with anything we say, there will always be exceptions. Yeah, this is true. <laughs> yeah. If drafting were so simple, we probably wouldn't do it because it would be boring. Yeah, th- th- these are guidelines, not rules. So yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay, I think that's probably most on the basics of drafting. I oh. can't think of anything else, but then I can barely think of anything at all because I am now, I'm getting a bit feverish. I will be honest. So yeah. <laughs> Okay. Um, so, if there's any other questions that any anyone has on any basics that we haven't covered or anything we have spoken about that didn't make sense, then feel free to message us on Twitter or Facebook and we'll get back to you. Um, the, those will be in the show notes and they'll be mentioned at the end of the show. Um, okay. Cool, right, I think we are actually done. Yeah, I think I'll give you the opportunity to, you know, recover from your your sore throat now. I think we've asked you to speak enough. Um, well, <laughs> I say we've asked you to speak enough, but I'm now going to ask you to do the outro. <laughs> okay then, well, uh, we are on Tumblr at delvingintodraft.tumblr.com. We are also on Facebook as Delving Into Draft. Our email address is delvingintodraft at gmail.com. I'm on Twitter as Ravik underscore, Dan is Dark Cat and the Mad, and Steve is Toe Jam Horse. Your host for this week were me, Craig, and you, Dan. Woo, that's me! The intro and outro music is by Kevin McLeod. The name of the song is a canary, and it is royalty free music licensed to Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0. Mm-hmm.